Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solon Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have author Ryan Rickroad on the podcast. Sometimes funny, sometimes sad, often both. Ryan Rickroad's stories feature striking images and memorable characters, characters who often waver between strength and despair. He believes that writing fiction is a way of asking questions and pursuing answers. Rickroad is the associate fiction editor at Solemn Press and a writer from central Pennsylvania. He earned his MFA from the University of Montana in 2013 and is currently a visiting assistant professor of English and creative writing at Susquehanna University. His novella, The Mountains Made Depart, was a 2019 finalist for the Clay Reynolds Novella Prize and a 2020 honorable mention in the Landmark Prize for Fiction. He is currently finishing up a novel that retells and weaves together a number of dark fairy tales from the Brothers Grimm. You can find links to all Rick Road's published work at Ryan-Rickroad, that's R-I-C-K-R-O-D-E dot com. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his bio on the Solon website and his personal website if you want to find out more. So Ryan, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. Awesome. So just uh, tell us about yourself, namely, how do you come to Christ? All right. Um, so I was, I think I wrote in, in a, a memoir once, I was I was baptized as an infant and sort of brought to church um, every Sunday when I was growing up. Uh, but I didn't really become a Christian until I went through a period of doubt mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a high school student. Um, it was, I had gone through a, a breakup and was feeling generally lonely at the time. And then um, for Christmas, some uh, well-meaning relative got me a copy of The Da Vinci Code uh, by Dan Brown, which, which I guess that kind of dates me now. Um, I got halfway through that book. It's a thriller. It's a page turner. Every chapter is about, I think, a paragraph long. And so you're page, like turning these pages, wanting to know what happens next. And uh, halfway through the, the mystery, there's this historian character. It's a novel. Um, but there's this historian character who basically tells the protagonist and explains um, that everything the church has said about Jesus was basically made up by the uh, the emperor um, Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I read that, I had like suddenly realized for the first time in my life, I had no idea um, where Christianity came from or anything about like the the roots and foundations of my faith. Um, and it really uh, scared me. I felt like I was I don't know like suspended in like the abyss or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I had this uh, couple months of really intense doubt where I took the Da Vinci Code and I, I hid it in my sock drawer. I didn't even want to look at it. And uh, I would um, I would often go to the mall um, to see movies with uh, with friends. And I would go to the, um, it was the Borders bookstore. We still had Borders. I'm sounding so old on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I would go to the Borders and there was a book there um, called The Case for Christ by uh, by Lee Strobel, um, which, which I think is a fairly well-known book, but it was... Um, I, I must have heard about it in Sunday school. Um, Lee Strobel was a, a reporter, um, and I think his wife converted to Christianity, and he he's, uh, thought, man, she's not going to be any fun anymore. <laughs> and uh, so he he did all this research to try to uh, dissuade her from her beliefs and ended up converting himself. 
Um, and then this book is a series of interviews that kind of recreates that journey with a bunch of different scholars. Um, and so I would go to this, this Borders and I would take the book off the shelf and I would look at it and then I would put it back on the shelf because um, I, I was afraid the answers wouldn't be good enough. Um, I did that for a long time, for, for a couple months, but you can't like live in, in doubt forever. And so I finally bought the book and I took it home and I loved it. I mean, these, these scholars, um, they weren't scared or intimidated or cagey when he would ask these really hard questions about, um, you know, like the history of the New Testament and things like that. They, um, uh, they almost talked about it like sports fans. They were excited to, to talk about these questions. Um, and so I flew through that book and then I read uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, and then I read um, I guess it was a seminary textbook, one of those big like footnoted books, but it was called The, His the Historical Reliability of the Gospels uh, by a scholar named Craig Blomberg, or Bloomberg, I don't know how he says it. Um, but then after I read those three books, I started, decided that Jesus is the real deal. The resurrection was a, a historical event. Um, I want to give my life to Christ. Um, and so I was baptized um, for a second time, but, um, but as an adult by choice, um, actually in a creek. Um, shortly before my 18th birthday. Um, and then when I went on to college, I studied not just creative writing, but also religious studies, because I had just really found that um, asking questions could be an act of faith. Like that was really um, like a paradigm shift for me to realize that, oh, um, God doesn't always answer our questions, but he, he kind of always meets us in the asking. Uh, and so I, I did uh, religious studies um, as my second major at a, at a Lutheran university where I had a lot of sort of friends who were pre-SEM. And so it was a, a lot of biblical studies and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that, that asking questions uh, as, a, as an act of faith. I love that. Um, and uh, it, it delights me that you, um, as, as a literary person, have found your way uh, by help of apologetics. Um, you know, that's what we're trying to promote here at, at Solom um, is a, the intersection of literature and philosophy. So, uh, and philosophy undergirds apologetics. So I, I'm, I'm just so, I'm so grateful. Um, and obviously I'm, I'm grateful that you, you, found your, you found your way like that. So um, when did you start writing? I think I've always been writing. If you would ask my mother, I think she says she has, you know, all sorts of little, you know, bits and pieces of drawings with stories on them and things like that. Um, I really first decided I wanted to be a writer when I was in fifth grade. Um, we were all supposed to write stories and I, I got to read mine aloud to the class and everyone laughed at the funny parts. Um, and so I think the rest of my life has been just a pursuit of more more positive attention like that <laughs> in some ways. But yeah, I've, I've just always been a writer, wanted to be a writer and have always sort of written. Mm. So were there any authors that when you were growing up that particularly influenced you? As a kid, um, I mean, probably one of my most formative experiences was that my, my mother read uh, The Hobbit uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien um, to my brother and I a little bit by bit each night, which kind of amazes me that um, she committed to such a long book. Um, although she did not go on to the, the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy afterwards, um, but she read that, uh, Pottership Down, um, what else? And then a lot of my early writing, like as a kid, were like knockoffs of like Jules Verne um, and Ruel Dahl. Um, those were some of the writers I really liked um, as a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you were talking about, um, were there any others that kind of stuck with you? Um, as I started to sort of develop my style, um, I think James Agee, um, the way he writes, he's a, he's a really lyrical sort of writer. Um, I really like Marilyn Robinson, the way, the way she sort of writes about sort of faith in fiction. Um, I don't know, there's a million writers um, I could name. I, I, I don't want to just make a big long list, but, but those are two writers who um, helped me think about how I, I approach fiction. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, the other day I read your essay, um, Images of the Invisible, and in there you mentioned that uh, as a kid you feared um, Jesus because of his kind of wrathful portrayals uh, by your childhood Lutheran church. Um, and I hope I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing your, your church. I don't want to uh, step on anybody's toes. Yeah, um, I would say it's not so much the, the Lutheran um, aspect as it was the giant terrifying sort of angry sounding organ um that, oh, that we would have at church um every sunday and you know when you're a kid it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense um you're like what is what is going on the organ like will blow your hair back um everyone it was a very liturgical church obviously since it was lutheran um and i didn't really understand that which is kind of funny because my wife and i now um are are just really steeped in the anglican tradition and have really come to value um liturgy um but yeah but it was more like the just i don't know the strangeness of it and that, that working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oddly enough, I've, I've actually converted over to Anglicanism too as I've, as I've gotten older. Uh, so I, I feel you. Um, but do you feel that um, that fear that you, you express in the essay, do you feel that that um, uh, influenced your approach to your writing uh, in Christian themed pieces as you got older? I think it's made me just as a as a Christian and as a, a reader of the Bible, um, really appreciative and re- I have a high value for putting things in historical context. I and mean, that's kind of what that whole essay is about. Like, why is Jesus in, in art so often portrayed as a glowy white guy? Um, right. If he was a glowy white guy, Judas probably wouldn't have had to kiss him. He would have stood out. He would have just pointed. And you see the guy who's like lit up like a nightlight. Um, so I don't know. I It's made me value the Gospels a lot. Um, I think. My, my wife is a campus minister um, and she's observed some of her students are like, okay, yeah, yeah, the gospels, but let's get into the epistles. Like that's where the really heavy stuff is. And she's like, no, no, no. Like you want to look at Jesus. Um, and so I, I guess just as a Christian, it's, it shaped me in that way. Um, and I guess too, it, it's driven me to, to write um, in my writing to ask questions um, again, because that, that's kind of how I came to faith. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, growing up, I always wondered like, how to, um, you know, the white Jesus, the portrayals of that, I always wondered how he didn't die of melanoma out there, you know, in the blistering heat. In the, yeah, um, in the desert for 40 right. days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. Uh, yeah, I'm you would think he'd be more tan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so has your approach to writing kind of changed as you developed a more like accurate and intimate picture of Jesus? Yeah, I, I think it's made me, uh, more comfortable with ambiguity, uh, with exploring sort of doubt and, and difficulties, um, the difficulties of faith um, in my fiction, um, in my nonfiction. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's and I think, too, it's made me resistant to, uh, like, didactic forms of storytelling. I really think fiction should, should ask questions um, and sort of seek out um, sort of organic answers as opposed to sort of deliver, like, a predetermined message. I'm, I'm really kind of allergic to that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I, I didn't write this down in the questions beforehand, but um, that reminds me, uh, we studied Flannery O'Connor's pieces in, back, in my, back in my writing undergrad. Um, and one of the big problems that my, my writing teacher uh, expressed was um, she thought that Flannery O'Connor was too didactic, even though she was brilliant. Um, uh, have, you, have you read much Flannery O'Connor? Um, yeah, I've I've read uh, I read and enjoyed Wise Blood. 
Um, and I, and I've read uh, what a good man is hard to find that whole that whole book. I love I love a good man is hard to find that that particular short story. Um, I think that that ending really embodies. She always talked about wanting to to end her stories with a moment that's both in character and beyond character. Um, and I think that definitely accomplishes it that with the with the misfit right what does he say she would have been a good woman if there'd been someone to shoot her every day of her life um i don't know i that that story in particular i really love and and the story that comes right after it the river um which is just so haunting um, mm -hmm. and I, I don't want to say too much about it if, if no people haven't read it yet um but i i don't know i feel sometimes mixed about flannery o'connor she seems um I want to like her. I feel like I should, as as a as a Christian who's a writer, uh, I should be a big fan. And I like a lot of of what she's written, but but sometimes her stories feel like, man, like she's kind of mean to her characters. Um, I don't know. I, I really like to root for the the characters that I'm reading about. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but did you feel that that she was too didactic with her uh, moral messages and um, kind of evangelism? No, I don't. I I wouldn't say I felt that she was didactic. Um, just a little brutal sometimes. <laughs> I wouldn't want to ask Flannery O'Connor what she thought of my haircut, you know, because <laughs> she'd tell me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Flannery O'Connor might be kind of a tough friend to have. Um, do you uh, do you feel closer to God when you write? That's, that's a really interesting question. I think I would say yes and no. Um, a lot of my both my my essays and my my fiction my stories are, are question driven. I'm I'm sort of trying to figure something out and sort of seeking understanding. And so I think I often feel closer to God after I've finished, like when I've reached some sort of conclusion, when I've seen how things work out for these characters, or when I've sort of weighed all the ideas in an essay. Mm -hmm. um, I think then um, afterwards, sometimes I feel closer to God because I've I've asked that question and I've I've worked through it and I've sort of held it up in my writing and I've, I've thought about it. Like, like, for example, in some of my, my stories, it'll be like, um, like the, the novella, The Mountains May Depart. It's about this couple um, who's, who's lost a child and they're, they're both grieving and they're, they're both angry at each other. And so the question that, that drove that story is like, what has to happen um, for this couple to, to reconcile with each other, right? Because it, it's sort of about them reaching that point where either they're going to reconcile or fall apart. Uh, and so... Right, it switches back and forth between their perspectives. Sort of saying, like, well, how does how does this person's actions affect this person? How is this person misinterpreting what's happening here? Um, and you sort of work your way back and forth, and you're like, oh wow, like they, this is this is how it plays out. Offhand, would you explain the uh, the title, "The Mountains May Depart"? Um, yeah, "The Mountains May Depart" is a um, it's a, a verse from from Isaiah. Um, I believe it's from Isaiah. It's been a while since I've, I've worked on that that novella, and I've tried out a hundred different titles um, before I came to that one. Uh, but the novella is set in, in Missoula, Montana, which is a city that's right up against the mountains. Um, and it's in some ways, I like the ambiguity of the title that it's the mountains could be like these troubles um, that they um, that they are facing, and, and maybe these these mountains will depart. I think the original verse in Isaiah, um, I'd have to look it up. Um, but I think it's something like God's love is is like the mountains may depart, but God's love will remain. Okay, yeah, that was a, that was a great choice. It, it works very well. Um, so, what was your first publication, and uh, where was it placed? Uh, it was a uh, story I wrote as an undergrad called "We Are the Pretty," uh, and it was published in an online uh, literary magazine called Identity Theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I might have read that one. Um, 
just uh, what was it like? What was it like for you as you got published for the first time? In some ways, it was it was anticlimactic. It's like you you whole your life you want to get published, you want to get published, and there it is, and it's out there, and people can read it, and you know there was no big parade, there were no fireworks or anything, but it was still it was still satisfying. Um, it was the first story for a long time as a as an undergrad you know, going through workshops and, and there's this emphasis on you can revise and there's always something you can do to make it better. Um, when I sent that story out, that was the first time I'd ever felt I'd actually finished a story. Uh, and I don't even quite know how to put into words, like what it means to, to know that a story is, is finished. Um, there's a, a poet, uh, and I'm sure other people have said this, but the poet G.C. Walter um, once said at a reading I went to that he never really finishes anything. He just abandons it at key moments. Um, and I thought like, well, that, that's, that will be how it is for me too. But, um, but that was the first time I felt I had brought a story to completion. And um, I'm sure if I would look back at it now, there's all sorts of things I would want to change, but I would gotten it to a point where it's like, this is, this is it. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of rewrite the whole thing. I don't want to pull it apart. Um, I'm ready to start submitting it to magazine. Awesome. Um, so would you consider yourself more of a fiction writer or an essayist? Um, I'm, I'm definitely more drawn towards fiction. Um, I study both fiction and nonfiction in my MFA program. I teach a lot of creative nonfiction classes, um, but I tend to be more drawn towards, towards fiction. And I think that might be because of um, the questions I have. A lot of my nonfiction, my essays are sort of driven by intellectual kind of questions. Um, whereas the questions I have now are a lot about like, how do you live, how do you live your life? Um, and I think fiction is, is often a vehicle um, more suited to answering those those kind of questions or exploring those questions. Right. Uh, what do you normally write your essays on? All sorts of things. I guess whatever I have a, a question about. I mean, I really think, and I, I stress this with my writing students, that you want to write essays on things that you don't know the answer to. I, I really think essays should be about thinking on the page. Um, and that goes back to like the, the history of the essay. Um, it comes from a French word that means to try or attempt where you're trying out sort of different ways of thinking about a topic. It actually goes back all the way to a, a Latin word um, that means to weigh as in to sort of weigh different metals. And so I often um, tell my students when they're writing an essay, you wanna weigh different points of view and sort of think through things and um, throw out a lot of possibilities and work your way towards this um, really genuine conclusion, uh, right? In other like academic essays, right? Your conclusion is basically just your intro paragraph, right? Copy and paste it. Um, and put at the end, um, at least at least in undergrad. Um, whereas in a you know a literary essay, your conclusion is is this genuine conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And so my essays have tended to be about um, sort of faith related questions. We mentioned that that piece where um, where I'm really bothered by these non historically accurate um, you know portrayals of Jesus. Um, I've, I've written an essay about sort of evolution as a, a problem of theodicy and sort of weighing that. Um, yeah, that's. Does that does that get at the the question? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you find it harder to write essays than fiction? Sometimes. Um, again, like I, I I tend to just gravitate more towards fiction. I think again because of the questions I'm interested in and um, the sort of writing I want to do. I just find myself more interested in telling stories. Um, but also in, in creative nonfiction, there's like this high demand. You have to be really willing to be vulnerable, um, to be honest with the reader, to sort of be this, this sort of total openness, um, particularly in memoir, but also in essays. 
Uh, and so, I don't know, you can do sort of similar things in fiction, but you have that, that cloak of, you know, semi-autobiographical uh, fiction uh, where, where you can sort of write about these things and explore them with, with maybe a little more distance. Um, and you're also sort of free to, to change things around. Um, you're not sort of bound, you know, just to the facts. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think the purpose of writing fiction is? I think the, the purpose of writing fiction is to, to give the reader an experience that's, that's worth their time. Uh, I really think about stories as experiences we as readers get to have. Uh, the novelist John Gardner um, in his, um, his craft book, The, the Art of Fiction, uh, he says that uh, the goal of the fiction writer is to create a vivid, continuous dream in the mind of the reader. Uh, so like the best books, I think, are the ones where when you're reading, you forget that you're looking at words on the page and you just start to experience the story. You just kind of lose yourself. Um, you know, time flies by. Um, and so, so I don't know. I think that's, that's what fiction should do. It should give us this experience. I'm a big believer um, in, uh, it's called a transactional reader response theory. It was developed by a, a theorist named Louise Rosenblatt. Uh, where she sort of um, suggests that stories and, and poems, they're almost like sheet music, where the, the writer creates them, uh, but they don't really become an actual story, right? The text is just a bunch of black marks on a white page, uh, and it doesn't come to life until a, a reader comes along and reads it. It's kind of incomplete until a reader comes and kind of, I, I mean, I almost think about it like in Genesis, where God breathes life into to Adam, right? He's lifeless until um, God comes along, and, and readers, I think, sort of do something similar for stories. Hmm. Um, now along with that, what, 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 is the, what is the purpose of writing fiction as a Christian? So I think for, for me, again, it's about creating an experience. Um, as a religious studies major, one of the things I studied was um, this idea of sacred space. Uh, and so sometimes I think about stories as, as sacred spaces. Um, in, uh, in the book of Exodus, you've got this guy Bezalel who God tells Moses he's, a, he's appointed to, to design and to create the, the tabernacle. Uh, and so as a, as a Christian who's a writer, uh, I sometimes think about myself um, in that sort of role where I'm, I'm sort of designing this, this sacred space. I'm creating this experience for the reader to enter into and have, right? Because Bezalel, he's not of the, the priestly tribe. So he's designing this beautiful, ornate um, space where, where people will go to encounter God. Um, but those people won't be him. Uh, and so I think about that as a writer, that I'm creating these spaces uh, that a reader can enter um, and experience some sort of felt truth, um, where they'll, they'll sort of feel some sort of uh, emotional truth or they'll feel the truth of, of something. Uh, and it doesn't have to be uh, an explicitly Christian truth for me for it to be a, a Christian story. Um, I think all truth belongs to God. Uh, and so, so that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Your fiction uh, is extremely diverse thematically and in terms of the the subjects that you write on um did that uh, versatility come naturally to you as you were uh, developing in your writing or did you have to kind of work at it that's an interesting question because i don't to me i guess because a lot of my fiction is like rooted in my my own life experiences it doesn't seem like there's a, like a lot of diverse material it seems like it's all like well i lived through something like that, I've met a person kind of like that. I've, you know, I've done this sort of job. I've been to this sort of place. Um, in some ways, though, like as I think about writing stories that I'd like to to uh, one day sort of bring together in a, a collection, um, I don't want every story to be, you know, 
um, told from the same point of view um, from the person in sort of a similar circumstance. And so, uh, so it is a little bit, I suppose, a, a choice on my part to try to write about people, um, you know, men and women, old people, young people, um, people at different stages in their life. Um, so that is a little bit of a deliberate choice. Um, but also it's all just sort of drawn from, from my life. Um, so I don't know, it's an interesting question. I, I feel like you maybe see more diversity in it than I, than I do. Maybe I'm too close to it. How do you, um, how do you enter the mindset of all these characters that you, that you write? I just try to, I just ask myself, how would I feel in this situation? If, you know, if I was this, this sort of person in this sort of situation, how would I feel? How would I react? Um, there's a, a Catholic short story writer named Andre Debuse, uh, who's a, a great essay about this. I can't remember the, the title of the essay, but he talks about how he, he would try so hard to imagine what is it like um, to be this person right down to um, the example he gives is like, how does a, how does a glass of beer feel in their hands? Um, and he was, um, he was formerly in the military, a, a, a bigger guy, and he, he recognizes that a, a glass of beer in his hand would feel different than, you know, a 120-pound woman um, would hold a glass of beer and it would feel differently. And he would get down to that sort of level of imagining, um, you know, what, what does the world look like from, from this point of view? And then he would just sort of follow his characters and see what they do next. Um, um, is, there, is there a process to how you go about gaining insights on your characters? Um, like, uh, do, do you go around um, uh, talking to people personally or do you just research online or uh, what, what's kind of your process with them? I think mostly I'm, I just observe people um, and uh, wonder what, what would it be like? Like, what is their life like? How do they see things? This is how they speak. This is how they, they react to things. Um, Right, and, and I'm sure the creations I come up with, right, are, are not, not how they would actually think, right, but it's this, it's something different, but it's, but it's not quite me and it's not quite them, um, but it's different enough that, that it doesn't just sound like every character is, you know, the, just versions of the same person, I hope. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know, I don't know, there's not like a trick to it, I don't know, I just kind of do it without thinking. Um, I do one thing that I, the practical thing that I find helpful is when I write drafts and I do multiple drafts um, and the first draft is, is sometimes just about getting down like what happens like just sort of roughly sketching out uh, how something goes and then the next draft is maybe about getting the emotions right and being like oh no they wouldn't be angry there they would actually be really embarrassed or something like that uh, and then the next draft maybe is about getting all the the visual details that will really draw the person in and maybe the next draft is about making sure um, the sentences all sound good and that you take out all those extra words uh, that you don't need. And so I find it helpful too, in terms of like getting into the heads of the characters um, to maybe save that for, for a second draft to sort of go through it, but then to revisit it and where I can really focus on it. Um, Cause it's hard to do everything at once. And that's what you kind of have to do when you write a story, you have to be describing things and thinking what the characters we're doing, but then also you have to be thinking about the plot and what's going to happen. Um, and you don't want to just write terrible sounding sentences. Um, so I, I find it helpful to, to give myself permission um, to focus on one thing at a time as I move through multiple drafts. Mm. Uh, do you find it hard to write about such different kinds of people or does it just kind of come uh, easily to you? I think I, I enjoy it. I, I like sort of thinking about how different people perceive things in different ways. A lot of my longer works I mentioned that in the mountains made apart, it's about this couple and it alternates um, his point of view, her point of view. Uh, and I find it fascinating the way like someone thinks they can um, 
you know, what they think is a loving gesture can be interpreted as like a hostile um, gesture by the other person if they're not in a good place and, and the way different people perceive different things. Um, or the novel I'm, I'm finishing up right now, which is based on a lot of fairy tales, uh, I find it interesting the way that everyone's kind of the hero of their own story. Uh, and then when we switch points of view, suddenly that protagonist is the, you know, is the MacGuffin to this other character, right? The object of the quest as opposed to a, a living, breathing human being. Um, and the way people perceive things in different ways. And um, fairy tales have lots of interesting class dynamics um, in them, as you can see how, how the things look um, to someone who doesn't have much versus someone who has, um, you know, more than they'll ever need. Um, I don't know, I find perspective really interesting to play around with. Um, I notice that a lot of your fiction is told from children's perspectives. Um, is there a reason for that? That's that's a really interesting observation. I don't think I've, I've ever noticed that before. Um, the only answer I can think of is that, you know, I was a, a kid once, and so that's a point of view that, you know, I, in theory, know pretty well. Um, I find it harder to write about people who are, um, you know, in their 50s, because um, that's not a, you know, a life stage I've reached yet, maybe. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but it is interesting now that you pointed out. I have several stories that sort of focus on that more childlike point of view. Right. Uh, do you generally prefer writing about kids when, you, when you're crafting those stories or... Uh... Or yeah, do you, do you just prefer kind of uh, writing more about adults? I think it depends on the story. I mean, you just pick the the character that makes sense for the the story that you need to tell. Uh, the kids are kind of fun because they both like know more about the world and less about the world than adults do. Like in some ways, they're more honest. They can sort of see through, um, you know, some of our our BS um, as adults. Uh, but then also, they, there's this wonderful opportunity for dramatic irony where kids, you know. They don't know how the world works um, or they they misinterpret things in really interesting ways um, mm -hmm. so. um who's your uh, favorite character that you've written so far i think that probably changes depending on what i'm i'm working on uh, right now it's probably the one of the two protagonists from the the novel um the character's name is aiden um, like i said it's a, a novel based on on a lot of fairy tales uh, and so she's this this princess on the run. It's kind of a fairy tale thriller, right? She's like Cinderella in The Fugitive or, or Snow White in The 39 Steps, something like that. Uh, but there's all these people tracking her down. Uh, and the thing that keeps giving away her identity is that when she touches people, she can heal their, their sickness and their illness, um, kind of like um, Christ in the Gospels or uh, I think it's King Edward in Macbeth um, is also um, able to do that for his subjects. And so she does this and people are like, oh, we know who you are. Uh, and to me, that makes her a really interesting character. She's a she's a, a Christian, sort of was raised by a, a priest, uh, and so she she knows the story of, of Jesus. Um, she knows the Gospels, and she knows that like as a Christian, she's kind of supposed to live that out. Um, but also, she struggles with that, like with wanting to live out that narrative. And I find that a really interesting tension to explore. Mm. Um, do your stories always have a Christian theme to them explicitly, or does it? or does it kind of vary depending on the story? I think if you are a Christian, most of your, your themes, the way you see the world uh, will be Christian. Like even if it's not explicitly um, a Christian story or it has, doesn't have explicit Christian characters. And I can't remember if it's uh, Flannery O'Connor or Madeline Langle who sort of says, I think it's Madeline Langle in a book called Walking on Water. Um, where she says that, you know, if, if you're a Christian, your art will be Christian. Um, it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you have a lot of Bible verses in it um, or not. Um, 
that said, I find it really interesting to think about as a writer, like the technical challenge of how do you um, portray Christian characters um, for uh, for an audience um, that's primarily secular, who, who might not understand where these characters are coming from. Um, and one way to do it, you see a lot of writers will sort of write about like faith from a distance, um, where, where you have sort of a, a non-Christian character sort of brushes up against um, some sort of religious um, character and it kind of alters the trajectory of their life. They kind of think about it. Um, my favorite example of that, the Irish writer Frank O'Connor has a story called Man of the World. And it's all about his really cool friend who's, who seems so much more worldly and cool than him. And uh, he invites this, this kid over there. He said, we're gonna, I want you to come spend the night at my house. Um, there's this new married couple just moved in across the street and they don't have any curtains in their bedroom. And this, this narrator is like, he doesn't know what to do. He's, he doesn't want to do this. He thinks this is wrong um, to spy on the neighbors like this, but his friend is so cool um, that he feels like he can't say no. And as they climb up um, the stairs and they, they look out through the attic window to spy on this couple and what they see them doing isn't, isn't having sex. Um, they see them doing their evening prayers and it just fills the narrator with so much shame that he realizes I don't want to be a worldly person like this at all. And that's kind of where the story ends. Um, and so that's one way to do it. Um, another way to do it, I think, um, in a way that I'm really interested in is sort of that sort of psychological realism uh, where, where you're trying to portray like you write a character from the inside, a, Christian, a character who's a believer. Um, and I think Marilyn Robinson is, is a, a writer who does that um, really well in books like Gilead. Um, there's a, a line in Gilead, a term that the, the narrator, um, who's this elderly uh, minister, he talks about this idea of earned innocence. Um, and he says it's, um, it's different than the innocence of children um, who don't understand the world, um, but they think someday they will. And he says, I'm an old man and I'm like amazed by the, the world. Um, and I know I'm never going to understand it. And so I have this earned innocence. And mm -hmm. I think there's a, I know a, you, I think you have to be able to, willing to engage with doubt um, and bring like, let characters experience that and let characters struggle um, with their fate um, in ways that seem honest to make it feel, I think, authentic uh, to, to readers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a good way to put it. Um, now in your, narrative structure you vary it quite a bit do you think that the elements of conventional modern fiction should be generally followed or do you think that the rules of fiction uh were kind of made to be broken i think the only real rule is that you have to keep the reader's attention uh, for me as a, as a writer i even when i write sentences i tend to write i tend to not want to put a period at the end of the sentence i tend to want to put an m dash or a comma and let my sentence keep going because i don't want to give the reader an excuse to check their phone um, or to pull up a youtube video or something like that i feel i feel really conscious of like just how short modern attention spans are and so um i know i think that's the only real rule again it goes back to that um that idea from john gardner for me that idea that fiction should be a vivid continuous dream in the mind of the reader um, and continuous means not giving them an excuse to put it down. Um, and vivid means, right, that they forget that they're sitting in a chair, right, looking at a book, right? They, they feel like they're immersed in a story. Um, and so for me, I think, I think vivid detail is often really important, details that are sensory or specific that kind of draw the reader in, um, especially if you can get like one or two great details that kind of evoke a whole scene. Um, I think character is really important. I, I want to have characters that I can empathize with. Um, not necessarily characters who are, are like me, but characters who I can root for um, and understand. Um, and I think plot too is, is kind of, um, 
Well, I think plot is important. I think sometimes it's, it's undervalued in, in literary fiction. Um, but plot is, um, right, it creates suspense, it creates curiosity, um, it can create dread if you're reading like a Greek tragedy or, or watching a horror movie, right, that, that don't go down in the basement feeling. Um, and plot, I think, is part of how stories express their meaning. We, we see a character, um, right, go through a bunch of things, like they make choices and we see what happens to them. And that's, that's part of where fiction gets its meaning. And that's, that for me, plot is that kind of cause and effect that, that drives a narrative forward. Um, so I think all those things are important tools um, and language too. Obviously you want sentences, like I said, that are interesting and engaging or a voice that people will listen to. I think humor can be a great tool. I often use humor in my stories, um, but I don't think there are, there are rules necessarily. I think the only rule is um, don't waste the reader's time, right? Don't let them, don't let them check for text messages, right? Um, keep, them, keep them focused on, on, on the story you're telling. Right. Um. Now you also teach writing in addition to uh, to uh, writing it. Um, would you say that there's an objective standard by which we we say this is good fiction or this is bad fiction? No, I don't think so. Um, I think again, I think it's about experiences. Um, again, to that, that idea of like transactional reader response theory, right, where stories are experiences we as readers get to have. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book um, called An Experiment in Criticism, and he makes this, this interesting argument uh, that we should judge books based on the experiences we give, they give us. Uh, like what kind of reading experience is it? Uh, and that, that bad books give us like one sort of experience and that good books um, give us a, a deeper, more immersive sort of experience. Um, but I don't know how you would quantify that. Um, he, Lewis even says that you, like even if you read something and it doesn't work for you, that just means it didn't work for you. That doesn't necessarily mean it was bad. Um, it's really hard to, you know, sometimes know if something for sure was objectively good or bad. Um, but in, in the context of, of teaching writing, I think it's really helpful to have like models of like, here's, here's a lot of different ways to do it, right? Let's read a lot of different, um, whatever genre you're teaching, right? If it's um, right, if you're teaching creative nonfiction, let's read a lot of different types of memoirs and a lot of different essays that use a lot of different structures and a lot of different techniques uh, so that we can see what all the possibilities are. Uh, and then um, I think it's helpful too to have a shared vocabulary um, so that when you start talking about the pieces being workshopped, people, um, people are all on the same page, you're not talking past each other or something like that, that we can talk about, like, this is what we mean by voice or, um, or if it's in an intro class, um, even like basic terms that maybe we take for granted of defining of dialogue and things like that um, is good so that everyone is, is talking to each other. Um, and I think too, it's really important to create this sort of collaborative atmosphere in the workshop. The way I usually run a workshop class um, is I'll start by asking the writer, um, in some workshops um, it's pretty strict, right? Where the writer's supposed to go and sit quietly and not say anything. Um, and I, I don't find that, particularly in working with younger writers, I don't think that's the best approach. Um, I like to, to ask the writer at the beginning, so where do you feel like you're at in your process? Um, and you know, nine times out of 10, the, the writer will say, oh, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle, it's definitely not done. Um, but I feel like that's a chance for them to acknowledge that the, to the rest of the class that this is uh, a work in progress, um, that it's okay to critique it. Um, they know it's not, like they're not holding it up as like the best story ever. Um, it gives them a chance to kind of save face a little bit if they're a little nervous. Um, and then I like to start with what's working well. Um, I asked the class, we'll have a discussion on what's working well, um, what did you like, and you know, start with the positives. Um, 
And then I like to move into almost discussing it like a piece of literature, Austin. It's like, what did you feel while you were reading this piece? Uh, what are some of the themes or ideas that came up for you? And I found that that, that, that question of themes and ideas is often really illuminating um, to the person being workshopped. Because when you're writing a piece, you're not like necessarily thinking about themes and ideas. You're just, you're just trying to figure out how to make everything hold together. Uh, and so they often find that um, really illuminating. And then before we start giving the, the constructive criticism, I always pause and I say to the writer, uh, do you have any specific questions you'd like to hear us talk about? So I still expect them to be quiet, but, but that gives them some agency and some ownership over the, the critical part of the conversation where uh, they can sort of steer in a certain direction where they can say like, well, uh, you know, did the, did the characters work here? Or I felt the dialogue was flat. What did people think? Um, and then we can talk about anything. Sometimes people just say, you know, I'm open to whatever you got. I don't really know what to do with this. Um, but I find that if you create that more collaborative um, atmosphere where you're trying to help the class, help the writer accomplish what that writer is setting out to do. Uh, I think the, the worst sort of criticism is when someone says like, well, here's how I would do it, right? And they, they take whatever the piece is and they turn it into something completely different, um, right? Where it's like, well, that's a nice, you know, mystery story, but what if, um, what if we took it and turned it into a like a prose poem? You know, well, that maybe that's interesting, but I think the writer's trying to write, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and so I think it's important to sort of give that the writer sort of a voice to help un them understand what is it they're trying to accomplish. So it's not necessarily about is this objectively good or bad, but is it accomplishing what the the writer hopes it will accomplish? Is it giving the reader the sort of experience that the writer hopes the reader will have? Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate how you uh, you'll give the writer uh, a voice in their in their own workshop. Um, uh, I know that in my undergrad um, we were <laughs> we were kind of forced to sit there and um, you know and just like uh, take whatever criticisms um, came our way. The uh, most maddening thing sometimes, and people who have done a lot of workshops will will eventually I think have this experience where people will talk for like five or 10 minutes about like a, a typo. And you're like, no, 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 the, the character Doris doesn't exist. Like I, I just forgot to change her name to Doreen or whatever, like, and, and you know, people should be able to speak up, I think, and, and correct things to make the, the workshop like as useful as they can for accomplishing, you know, their goals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I do think that there is an objective, um, an objective component to it. I mean, I think that, but what, what, I don't mean to say like that we, that we all need to be emulating this, the exact same story because it's supposedly the best. Um, otherwise our, our writing would just, would all seem the same, you know, no one, no one wants that. Um, but I, I, I do think that, uh, um, that, objectively good writing can be expressed in different ways. Um, and I, I guess, I guess a large portion of that objectivity would be being consistent in the style you've established, um, and being, um, well, holding to the logic of the story that's already been established. Um, would you agree with all that? I mean, I, I begin to go back to, to Lewis and the experiment criticism. He says it's just a fact that some books offer us a richer experience than others. But as soon as you try to sort of quantify, like to, to pin it down, it sort of shifts. Because even in like consistency of style, you could get a book like, um, 
like Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, which is actually like six books or seven books sort of all sort of spread out and it jumps from style to style in, in really interesting ways. Um, or I just finished a, a really interesting book called Magpie Murders, which is um, a mystery novel inside another mystery novel. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it, like, like I do think obviously that some writing is, is better than other writing. Um, I think like everyone knows that some books have worked better for them than, than others. Right. Um, but like the criteria of what makes for a good reading experience is so varied. There's so many different possible experiences you can have. Um, that to me, it gets really hard to define like what, mm -hmm. you know, is, you know, is this book objectively better than this book? Um, you know, unless you're like, unless the one book is like way out of the other's league, um, it, I, I think it's really hard and not necessarily a very fruitful sort of thing to, to think about. I don't know. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. Um, regard regardless of whether whether it can be objective or not, I mean, ultimately, uh, your your experience of fiction is gonna is gonna trump um, whatever you know uh, academic um, perspective you bring to it. Now, uh, <laughs> this is always a thorny question, but writers always get it. Um, are writers born or are they made? No writer likes to answer that question. I've never, <laughs> I've never read in any craft book where uh, someone answers it um, particularly well. I think, uh, again, John Gardner, um, he has a book, um, another craft book called, I think, On Becoming a Novelist is the title. Um, and he talks about this a little bit. And I think um, what he says is pretty good that you, there are certain traits, there's certain sort of, I think, character traits that um, will help you um, become a better writer that you kind of need. Um, to be a writer. I think a lot of writing can be learned, right? Like just like any art form, right? You can practice all sorts of different techniques of, of writing really vivid descriptions or writing, um, you know, really poetic prose or writing really spare prose, um, writing good dialogue. Like you can practice all those techniques the same way. Um, I don't know, you can practice scales if you're a musician or you can, you know, practice different types of brush strokes if, if you're a painter. Mm. Um, but, but Gardner lays out, and I think, I think that what he lays out um, I think he says like a writer should be a good observer um, of people. Flannery O'Connor says something similar. I think she says the, the writer's most important organ is the eye, um, right? That the writer needs to have a clear view of how the, the world really is. Um, and so you need to observe people. I think you need to be interested in people. Um, you kind of need to be a little bit of like a, a people watcher, I think. Um, and just curious about like other people's lives and how do people see the world. Um, and you need a love for language. I think it's John Gardner who says that um, Right. He, he asked a person, um, why did you become a painter? And the painter said, well, I just really like the smell of paint. Like, I just like being around paint. Um, and so if you don't like words and sentences, um, you're not really going to like being a writer, I don't think. Um, uh, so I think writers, you have to have sort of a love for language and, um, right. you know, how you, all the possibilities of it and, um, you know, how you can write sentences, things like that. Um, and I think you need to have a, a certain amount of stubbornness you, or you need to be a, have a little bit of a perfectionist streak. Um, you need to be kind of stubborn or determined because um, it takes a long time to, to finish things. Um, even if it's a short story, it can take a long time to get it right. It can take a lot of drafts um, and then it can take a lot of rejections before you, you find a, a place to publish it. Um, and so you need to be um, driven. Um, the, the writer, Annie Dillard, um, in her book, The Writing Life, um, she says, uh, she tells a joke. She says, what's the difference between a writer and a shoe salesman? And she says, and it's a dark joke. She says, if the shoe spills and doesn't show up for work, 
uh, people might miss him and ask about him. Um, whereas like, if you don't show up at your, your computer to, to write the next chapter of your novel, um, you know, Hollywood's not going to be like on the phone being like, well, did you do your writing today? <laughs> um, you know, so you have to, you have to be pretty self-motivated, I think. Um, I think a lot of the techniques and stuff you can, you can learn. Yeah. Um, the little, uh, pithy, uh, way I've come up with saying of answering the question would be form can be learned, but no one can ever teach you to have something to say. You know, um, yeah, I, I think I think that people can kind of bootstrap themselves into what we what we would call like good writers. Um, but in terms of like ever having something original uh, thematically or whatever, just a new a new message. Um, I think that there is a kind of intuition about that that some that it might not be able to be taught. So. Does inspiration factor much into your writing or are you pretty like regimented with your creative output? So I love the days when the writing is really easy. Like, like hopefully everybody who's a writer has at least like one, one experience of like where you write the sentence and it writes the next sentence for you and it writes the next sentence. And all of a sudden you have, you know, a whole story. You just sat down and wrote, wrote it in one sitting. That's happened to me once or twice. Um, but, um, but if I relied on that, I would will have only written like two stories in my whole you know, writer career. Um, and so for me, I find it, particularly when I'm writing a first draft. Um, so I said, I'm finishing up this novel and, and as well, I, whenever I write new material for it, um, I would sit down in the morning, I would tell myself, okay, you have to write 300 words today. I had like a little um, Excel sheet where I was sort of, you know, like, well, if you do 300 words a day, you will be at novel length by, you know, you could do the math. And you're like, so if you do this, you know, if you just stick with it, you will eventually have, you know, in theory, enough material for a novel. Who knows if it will be shaped like a novel, right? Um, particularly if you're you're someone who sort of writes to sort of see what happens next and you don't outline enough. Sometimes you're like, how do I, that happened with my novella. I was like, how do I make this into a, a story? I just have a lot of scenes. <laughs> um, but I would tell myself, you have to write, you know, 300 words each day. And I would write about 50 words and I would sit there and be like, I hate this. I have no talent. Why did I decide to do this? This is ridiculous. Um, and I would look at the clock and I'd be like, well, you've got 45 minutes before you have to go to work. Um, so just keep going. Um, and usually what would happen after I'd hit that point and push through it, um, is I would, something would click and I would write a bunch and I would look up and I would have say 600 words, which is like two double space pages, or maybe even more than that. Um, because I pushed through that and, and something like the gears loosened in my brain or something and things started actually turning and working the way they're supposed to. Um, and so that 300, you know, 300 word um, Mark was, uh, I don't know, it was like a magic number for me where it's like, well, if you aim for that, you'll, you'll get more. Um, like it's short enough to be accomplishable. Um, but it's, um, but it's long enough that I have to push through that, that initial feeling of, of frustration and discomfort, um, and to sort of, um, to shut off my inner critics, sort of outrun them to say like, all right, we'll just keep going. Uh, and so that's a process that's, that's worked pretty well for me. I'd like to try to get um, to get better, I'd like to maybe bump up to like, see, can I do a thousand words? Um, right. Cause, um, I don't know. I, I guess the more you do it, the more confidence you get. I'm, I'm finally at a stage in my writing career where I'm starting to, to know a little bit more about what my process is and to be able to trust it, to feel like I don't have to get everything right the first try that I know I can go back, um, 
and make the dialogue better. Or I can go back and get the character dynamics um, a little more true, things like that. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, do you think that a, fi a fiction writer should have like a good work ethic or uh, in other words, like write even when they don't want to um, or should they uh, just kind of wait on inspiration or is there kind of some middle ground? So I think, I think you have to write even when you don't feel like it, if you want to complete a project. Um, but that said, it can be good to take breaks and to get distance, especially coming out of like the pandemic lockdowns. Um, I felt less creative, less driven, and it's, it's been good for me. Uh, before we started recording, I was, I was telling Riley how I've, I'm taking a break from writing um, and I'm just building bookshelves um, as, a, as a way to sort of clear my head. And, um, you know, I'm going to take this week and then I'm going to come back to writing next week. Um, so I think breaks can be important and things like that. But I think also, um, particularly if you're working on a longer project, I find it really helpful for me. If I miss a day or two of working on a novel, I feel like I have to kind of go back. Um, like I lose all the threads. I lose the, the momentum. Um, and so I try to to make sure when I'm, when I am writing, that I'm writing, you know, a little bit each day. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. Um, what advice would you give to fiction writers who have like mitigating life circumstances, like, uh, you know, like 70 hour work weeks, families, you know, kids with health issues, or the writers themselves have depression or anxiety or yeah, what, what, what would you say to them? So I think those are, are two different issues. I think if, if you're a, a writer struggling with depression, you should, you know, talk to a counselor. Um, so that could, you know, addressing that will make writing a lot a lot easier um, down the road, hopefully. Um, whereas if you're if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of time, um, I think the, the trick is to make writing a priority, to try to take what little time you have and, and protect that. Um, to say like, all right, every morning I'm going to write for a half hour. I'm going to wake up, you know, a half hour earlier um, to give myself that chance to, to get that writing in. Or I'm going to stay up, you know, um, a little bit later um, to, to do a little bit of writing um, each day. Or, or I'm going to block off Sunday afternoons. Or I know that, you know, one Saturday a month I'm going to go, I'm going to be gone all day and I'm going to just write for that day. Write to whatever it is, um, you know, whatever time makes sense. Um, but just to make that a priority and to try to protect it a little bit. Um, I mean, especially with, with so many people working from home and with, you know, you can check your email from home, even if you do have an office job, um, right? Or, or you can get text messages, like my wife is in ministry, and so she'll get text messages from students, um, you know, even into the evenings and things. And so it's important, I think, to um, set up boundaries if you can. Uh, and I know people with, with young children, I, I, um, I've heard it's, it's sometimes it's helpful too to adjust like the scope of your project that people who are raising very young children um, will sometimes take a break from novel writing and will work on poems or short stories or you know things that you can you can make meaningful progress on during the course of a nap um, and uh, yeah and the one other thing I would say is as as you block off time for writing um, remember that that writing time doesn't have to be just like wall-to-wall -wall typing um, that that writing is also um, reading. Right, like I, I often will read a little bit to, to sort of get my mind um, engaging with language um, and excited about sort of like storytelling possibilities. Um, sometimes writing time can be, you know, going for a walk and sort of thinking through like, how does this scene play out before you sit down? Um, writing time can even be sending out submissions to magazines. Um, and so I, I, that for me was helpful um, at different points in my life to realize that like, oh, when I say I'm writing, what I really mean is I'm, I'm working on, on my writing. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean I'm typing 
you know, for a solid 45 minutes or something like that. Although sometimes it might. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can people make a living being a writer anymore? Some people do. Um, there's, there's, um, there are ways to do it. Um, right. I'm a, I'm a full-time teacher. I'm a, a professor. Um, so I teach English and creative writing classes. Um, so I don't make a living off my writing, but it is something I, I am interested in um, exploring and, and learning how to do. There's a book I would highly recommend. Um, it came out um, in 2018. I wish it had been come out like 10 years ago um, when I was doing my MFA, but it's called The Business of Being a Writer uh, by Jane Friedman. And she talks a lot about like different um, career paths for writers. She lays out um, the basics of like how publishing works, um, things like that, sort of different paths you can take, sort of traditional publishing, um, small press, independent publishing, um, well, ind independent or self-publishing um, or small press publishing, like all these different paths. Uh, and one thing she stresses um, is that if you want to make a full-time living as a writer, you have to think about how you can create multiple streams of income. Um, so no one, um, unless you're very, very fortunate, um, you know, you have, um, you know, a lot of really great um, books that are continuing to sell really well, um, like maybe a Stephen King or something like that. Um, you have to think about, right, so much of your money will be made from book sales. And obviously, the more books you have, um, the more books you can sell. Um, so there are people who, um, like self-publishers who can make a living publishing, but they publish like four books a year or something like that. Um, maybe even more than that. And, and the kind of writer I am, I, you know, that's not, a, not an option for me. Um, but you want to think about how much money is coming in from book sales and how much money is coming in from, um, I don't know, like if you have a Patreon or if you have a, a blog that you've monetized, um, if you do, if you teach classes, um, if you do, if you engage in sort of speaking. Um, so you want to sort of think about how do you build the, the whole thing um, together? Um, do you do freelance editing? Like there's a lot of different things, but you kind of have to cobble it together, most people. Mm. Uh, and what about making a living as a, as a uh, Christian writer? I mean, I think I mean, for me, I, I, I think that term Christian writer is, is one that like has like in our um, culture, sometimes has like weird sort of marketing connotations to it that like when I hear Christian writer, I think about like Amish romance novels and things like that. Um, whereas I tend to think about myself as I'm a Christian who writes and I'm a writer who is a Christian. Um, and so, so I think, you know, that multiple streams of income, all of that um, would still apply. Um, if you're a, a, a Christian writer. Okay. Um, do you think that there are any uh, writers right now we should keep an eye on uh, that might be up and coming? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually jotted down a couple. Um, there's a writer named Tyler James Russell. Um, he was actually, his poetry um, was featured in issue one of Solem. Mm -hmm. um, I I, a magazine I used to edit called Dog Pond. We published one of his stories, uh, a really weird story called Goat Boy. Um, but he, uh, I think just last year, came out with a, a collection of poetry called How to Drown a Man uh, that I think is just really great. Um, I think he's coming out with a novel um, sometime next year. Uh, so um, so that would be one writer um, to, to keep an eye on. Um, I also got to meet a poet recently named Shanna Paulus Wheeler, um, who has a great book called Even Song for Shadow. Um, for shadows uh, that I think a lot of listeners to this this podcast would like. Um, and then uh, an old classmate of mine, um, uh, Melissa Goodrich, I think um, I think people should read more of her fiction. I think she should be more well-known. Um, she has um, 
just really great, really inventive stuff. Um, she once described her stories, a lot of her fiction is about um, things changing into other things. She has a really great story that's kind of about anxiety um, called The Girl Who Turns to White Rabbits. Um, and so it's this very, um, very fun um, sort of magic realist sort of story about a girl who literally turns into white rabbits um, when she starts to feel anxious and, and what her life is like. Um, and so uh, she has some really interesting stuff if, if people would look her up. That's Melissa Goodrich. Um, so what practical advice would you give to aspiring Christian writers? Like um, where should people submit and how do they find agents? Do they even need agents? You know, just stuff, just stuff like that. So I would say get that book, The Business of Being a Writer by Jane Friedman. Um, it lays all that stuff out um, a lot better than I ever could. Um, I think specifically to, to Christian writers, um, the advice I would give is to spend some time thinking about how you, you understand your faith and art as working together. Um, I think that right, you can learn how to be a good writer. Um, and obviously there are churches and things that can um, teach you how to grow in your faith. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of writers I meet who are, are Christians or, or artists in general who are Christians, um, they haven't, sometimes they can't quite articulate how those two uh, facets of their identity sort of interact and, and nourish each other. Uh, and so I would encourage um, Christian writers to, to spend some time thinking about that. Um, and there's some great books out there. I mentioned, I think earlier, Walking on Water uh, by Madeline Lengel. Um, that was a book that really helped me sort of think about these things. Um, Brett Lott um, has a book called Letters and Life um, that, that's pretty good. Uh, Ron, Han yeah, Ron Hansen um, has one called uh, A Stay Against Confusion. Um, Flannery O'Connor obviously has a lot of thoughts and a lot of things to say about this sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I would say it's think about that. And I would say, um, read other Christian writers, read the great sort of fear. Like, how do they, how do they do it? How do they pull this off? How do they write about faith in, in ways that um, both Christians and non-Christians find really compelling? Um, Image Magazine, um, I think on their website has a great like 100 list of like 100 writers of faith. That's a really great starting point if you're wondering sort of how do I find these, these writers? Um, yeah, and, and obviously look at um, Christian literary magazines like Solon. Um, I really like Ruminate and Dappled Things. Um, Image is a big one. Um, the Wind Hover. Um, there's a fair number of them out there, but you kind of have to look. Um, now, as the fiction editor for Solon Press, uh, what do you look for in fiction submissions? So I look for... I think first of all, I look for stories that are, are engaging, um, like is it, whether it be through language, um, whether it gives me characters that I really can empathize with and, and maybe even root for. And that doesn't mean the characters have to be um, heroic or even good people. I think some of the, you know, I like, think about like, I don't know, like Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, right? Like you, you kind of root for him um, even as he does terrible things, right? Um, but characters who are complex and interesting and who you want things to happen, um, Right, you want good things to happen to them, right? you're rooting for them. Um, again, language and voice, I, I, you know, I really love sentences that just sound great. Um, and then I look for, um, does the story have like a resonance with, with Christianity? Um, so it doesn't necessarily, like I said, I think all truth belongs to God. Like if it's true, it's true. Um, and I don't look for, for stories that are didactic, but I think about it in terms of sort of resonating with um, a Christian outlook. Okay, um, and just in closing, Ryan, um, as part of Solem, what do you hope that uh, 
Solem will ultimately accomplish. So I'd love to see us create a space uh, for Christian literary writers uh, to, to publish their stuff, to get their names out there, um, to discover other um, writers who hold similar outlooks and similar values. Uh, I think sometimes Christian writers can feel um, both like they totally they don't completely fit into to the literary scene and they don't completely fit into their their church. They're not quite fully understood in either place. And so I would love for Solon to be a place where um, people are understood, like both those identities overlap here. Um, and then I also really like the uh, the interdisciplinary vision you have for the magazine, Riley, because um, I think the the church in general, like there's so much great literature out there and that it, it amazes me that there's not, you know, copies of these magazines, like, you know, in the, the foyers of churches all over the place, because there's, there's really a lot of great uh, art being produced. Um, and it would be great if, if we could see, um, you know, churches support the, the Christian artists in their midst um, a little bit more, to be a little bit more aware of them um, as they're developing, um, as they're kind of coming up, um, and not just uh, when they make it big, you know? Yeah. Um, again, I just want to say how much I appreciate your your help with Solem, and uh, we just, uh, yeah, it, it's just such a blessing to have you on. So, um, so thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Alrighty, well, uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>